verses 13 to 27 and can be found on page 1061 of the Church Bibles. Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything which had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked them, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things, and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading comes from the Gospel of St. John, chapter 12, starting at verse 23. 108a. tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, and the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me 
where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this earth. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these two great passages. The words of our Lord Jesus explaining his sense of calling and his, uh, um, the shape of his calling to us, following your will. One in which he speaks uh, of his own understanding. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to respond to you. words, now is the time for judgment on this world. And I have to say that uh, our family are waiting under a time of judgment. We and a number of families are waiting for exam results coming in. We're not absolutely sure what's going to happen. Sure they're going to be great. But it's a scary time. Exams are a test of everything that we have learned. All that we've practiced and experienced in the subjects covered. I remember my first public exams um, at university. They were called uh, Literae Humaniores Moderations, a phrase uh, designed to strike terror into uh, the heart of any young aspiring classicist. Uh, mobs were absolutely notorious. They were thought to be the longest series of exams in the Western world, second only to the Chinese exams for the diplomatic force vividly remember sitting down to my first exam paper and thinking to myself, as if I wrote non-stop everything that I had learnt in the previous five terms, I would probably stop well before halfway through the amount of time set for the exam series. Exams are an invented crisis in which we discover what we have learnt. But crises come along at every stage and in every area of our lives. And in those moments of crisis, whether expected or not, we discover what we have learned. It's true of our appointment, to our first job, to our biggest job, 
to the biggest uh, crisis we face within our jobs. It's true of the crisis moments and major decisions that we face in our lives which test our character and our relationships. And it's true also of our discipleship. Peter was pretty confident about his discipleship. Well, I don't know about these other guys, Lord, but I'm ready to die for you. When the crisis moment came, not that long afterwards, it was with a sword in his hand that Peter wanted to face that crisis, but that wasn't the Lord Jesus' way. So he was forced to face it uh, in a courtyard under the eyes of sneering soldiers and uh, in the cross-examination of a mounted serving ones. And he found that he was not ready that discipleship promise that he had made. Peter's discipleship was, at heart, basically, a relationship with his master, Jesus, and through him, through Jesus, with his heavenly father. And so the quintessence of his discipleship is found in his prayer. prayer. Who we are So Jesus advised Peter to spend the short amount of time remaining before his moment of crisis, seeking his Heavenly Father in prayer, praying for strength and courage and commitment. Watch and pray, says Jesus to Peter, so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. In the moments of crisis, our ability to pray right, to act right in those moments, comes not out of nowhere, out of a kind of, you know, just a, a, a sense that that's how it should be, but it comes out of um, the step-by-step individual decisions of discipleship that we have made throughout our life. Praying right in the many small moments, good or bad, that make up our life, what enables us to pray right in the moments of crisis. Or to put it the other way around, the character which is revealed in us at those crisis moments is the character which has been formed in us step by step throughout our lives. Well, the crisis of Jesus' life was obviously his crucifixion. And it's clear that that crisis didn't catch Jesus by surprise. On a number of occasions, he had predicted to his disciples, warning them that it was coming. Even the night before, he warned them again that this crisis moment was on its way, would would be upon them shortly. And he spoke then with the one who would betray him and the one who would deny him. The crisis moment when it came for Jesus was actually not the next day, but was later that night. As he was kneeling, praying under the olive trees, able to look across the valley at uh, the great east door of the temple platform and to see the, um, the zigzag um, procession of torches coming down from that door from the temple platform and the, um, and the, the tower of the guard on the, uh, the corner of the platform just beyond. To see that procession of torch-lit soldiers coming down the side of the valley to 
across the valley and to come to the garden where he was praying. That was the moment when he could have made a bolt for it, run up uh, the, the hill behind him amongst the olive trees, over the top of the mountain of olives, and into the Judean desert beyond to escape the clutches of the soldiers coming for him. He called his disciples to awake, calling them to courage, and he accepted the terror which he was preparing himself to receive from his father's hands. His nerves held because he was calling. In that extended time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, in which Jesus waged an intense struggle against we only hear of two phrases that he prayed, presumably prayed with sufficient uh, volume and intensity that uh, the disciples who were somewhere away amongst the trees could hear the words themselves in the quiet air. And possibly also because Jesus prayed them again and again. But here are the two phrases that we have. Going a little further, Jesus fell with his to the ground, and he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, two prayers are virtually the same, they use the same words, but the different phrasing of the prayers shows that Jesus has moved in his perspective, his attitude, in his, in his intention, in his approach to prayer, from the first prayer to the second prayer. In the first prayer, it seems that the possibility of another way being found by Jesus as Father is still an open possibility. And so Jesus is begging that way might be found. Yet he is nonetheless ready to hold to his father's will above his own feelings and wishes. By the time of the second prayer, it seems that Jesus has worked through all of that equation once again and has recognized that there probably is no other way. And so he prays in acceptance and commitment. is ready to offer his life, literally, so that his Father's will might be fulfilled in him. Well, Jesus has long recognized the shape of that will. He's spoken of it a number of times. Right at the beginning of his ministry, you'll remember his baptism. He's there and uh, he's baptized by John the Baptist. And uh, the Holy Spirit comes in the form of a dove and the voice of God speaks these amazing words over him. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Clearly those are tremendous words of affirmation to Jesus, God's son. But they are also very interesting because 
um, God has chosen to take, God the Father chose to take two phrases found in different places in the Old Testament and to bring them together. The first phrase is taken from Psalm 2 and speaks of the Messiah, the anointed King of God, God's beloved Son who will come to conquer. The second phrase, in whom I am well pleased, is taken from Isaiah 41 and speaks of the suffering servant, the one who will come and suffer on behalf of many to bring God's redemption, God's, um, God's, um, God's reconciliation. So God the Father, in speaking these words of affirmation to Jesus, brings together two very different roles and ideas and concepts together in this one um, declaration of love and approval. And no doubt Jesus took these two phrases away and chewed over a restful difference in prayer in the 40 days of prayer in the wilderness, wilderness afterwards. Working out what their implications were for each other, how they fitted together, and what the significance and implication of these words and their context were to him and his ministry. And it seemed that by the time, the end of that time of wrestling and prayer in the wilderness, Jesus had pretty much worked out the shape of that ministry that God was giving to him and the implications of that for his coming life. So, uh, so he began to warn his disciples in due course about that, sharing with them the need for him to suffer and to die, recognizing the will that God had for him. But Peter is unable to recognize and to, to accept that purpose for Jesus. You remember he's just spoken of Jesus about, uh, about Jesus as the Messiah, and Jesus says yes. And remember, the Messiah is also the suffering servant who's going to suffer for his people, who's going to be crucified and die. And Jesus says, no, Lord, no, this is never going to happen to you. And Jesus says to him, get thee behind me. Take Satan's temptation and take it out of my way. If you're not speaking the words of God, Jesus never ran from what he recognized as God's call to him. And this is reflected in his prayers throughout his ministry, as we see in our reading from John chapter 1. Just a week before the end of his life. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, because it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. The disciples, on the other hand, seem not to have learned very much about the implications of their discipleship. Perhaps just not enough. When the crisis came for them, they didn't follow the Lord as... Uh, as Jesus had been uh, requiring them to do in this passage a week before. Remember Jesus says, The man who, uh, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. But when Jesus' crisis comes, far from being with Jesus, what do the disciples do? One betrays him, and denies him, and 
However, with Jesus' counter-encouragement during his uh, post-resurrection appearances to his disciples, and with the power of the Holy Spirit to work in them through and after Pentecost, they're able to regroup and are ready in a short space of time for all sorts of stuff coming their way, from derision, threats, beatings, imprisonments, and death. And in Acts chapter 4, only a month or so afterwards, we see how far they've come in their commitment to Jesus and how much stronger their prayer life has grown. So the disciples pray together, Now, Lord, consider the threats of these people and enable your servants to go on speaking your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God. As they had prayed, commitment, so they had Archdeacon, um, blessed be Archdeacon. He was an Archdeacon of Rome in the third or fourth century, I think, and he was commanded to bring out all the treasures of the Roman Church uh, to give them to the Emperor so that the Emperor could, uh, could use them for whatever the Emperor wanted to use them for. And he was given a day to bring all of that, uh, all of those treasures to, uh, to the Roman authorities, otherwise he would be martyred. Next day, uh, Lawrence, um, the archdeacon, uh, brings with him all the poor and the lame and the maimed and the blind and the crippled of Rome, and brings them to the Roman authorities and says, "These are the treasures of the church. These are the ones, the ones for whom Christ died." A wonderful. And it turns out a very foolish and bold thing to say because other Roman, uh, the Roman uh, authorities didn't accept that as a sufficiently good response, and so he was baked on a gridiron uh, in a few days following. The courage that Christians found to witness to their Lord and not to, to deny him and to um, and not to uh, sell out. What enables us to stay committed when times get really tough, as tough as they were for that archdeacon? Well, I see three things in these uh, these two um, passages of Jesus' praying which might help us. And the first is that Jesus received the love of the one who called him, the one who's calling who was committed. He 
Jesus received his Father's love. So right at the beginning of his ministry, we hear the words of loving affirmation of the Heavenly Father. You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus shaped all his prayer through the lens of that tender and intimate relationship of sonship. Always he prays to his Father. With each prayer, he declares his love for his Father and his trust in his Father. You remember his final words, his final prayer on the cross. Again to his Father. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Trust in responding with love to the love that the God the Father has, has poured upon us, then we will find a growing commitment in us to the calling that he has for us. So embrace your Heavenly Father. Secondly, Jesus understood his calling. He knew what his calling was. He was able to say, no, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. He was able to articulate that, uh, expressing later on in that passage to others. Speaking about his death, he said, I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. He was able to explain his calling to his disciples in that uh, Emmaus Road appearance after his death. Even to upbraid them for not having understood sufficiently clearly what he'd been saying to them all along was, was his calling. How foolish you are, and how slow a part to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Christ have to enter, to suffer these things, and then enter his glory? Do you understand your calling? These last couple of months I've been exploring Session, something of the amazing, extraordinary, powerful, challenging calling that we all share together as the Church of Christ, Christ's bride, Christ's body, Christ's army, Christ's people. And uh, after the summer, when we finished our series on what's on our heart, um, I'm going to be exploring again um, what that calling means for us as individuals worked out in different aspects of our lives. So the question is, do you understand your call? Could you explain it to others? Can you rely on it as you face um, big and difficult decisions so that you can use your sense of calling, your, the shape of your calling, to help you to make the decisions in the crucial so the first thing we need in order to be able to pray with Jesus' commitment is to understand and to receive God's love for us. The second thing is we need to be able to understand and receive God's calling on us. And 
Thirdly, Jesus practiced commitment in prayer. Again and again, he expressed his commitment to his Heavenly Father's will in his prayers, in his actions, in his explanations, in his predictions. A week before he died, Jesus prayed this, Father, glorify your name. The night before he died, he prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. He was practicing his prayer of glory. It was like a kind of liturgy going round in his mind. So that when he actually got to the point of crisis, he wasn't having to work it all out from first principles, having to kind of figure it out from scratch. How do I respond here? You know, what is it that God might want, how he might want me to behave in, in this point? He had already worked that out. He'd given himself um, scriptures and phrases and uh, theology, and uh, he'd given himself psalms, songs, that would encapsulate how it was that he should respond in the time of crisis. In our first um, service this morning, we sang uh, one of my favorite hymns from long ago. Jesus, I have promised to serve you to you. Now forever near me, my master and my friend. I shall not face, I shall not fear the battle, if thou art by my side. Go wander from the pathway, far from I sang that many times as a, as a uh, teenager, as a chorister, and then I've sung it many times since as part of my own private devotion in the bath or walking down the street with the band. But what I've done is I've, I've been inking in that, those phrases, that song. And I pray that if the time comes when I am called to account in the same kind of way that that Archdeacon of Rome was called to account, that I will have in my head something that I can sing which will keep me going on my cross, whatever that is. The second service... Um, in the 10.30 service, if you ever attend that, you'll remember that we start the service with a little exchange. And very often the exchange is, um, uh, I say, God is good. And those of you who have been in the morning service say, all the time. And then I say, all the time, and you say, God is good. And so, Sunday by Sunday, that congregation, those of you who attend it, are inking in, into your mind, phrase, which becomes like a liturgy, it becomes like a litany, it becomes, it becomes something that is a, you know, a brain, a neural pathway. That means when you get into a place of, of real scrutiny, you've got a phrase that's going through your mind, as Sarah and Charlie Avery have discovered over this last month, that they are able to use that phrase to declare, to express their continued commitment, their continued trust in their Heavenly Father, even when the rug gets pulled out from under their hands. For you, I want to offer something different. A different place. This is, the, this is Jesus' phrase. Jesus himself used this phrase. I want to invite you to commit this phrase to memory to start to use it in your prayers. Father, glorify your name. Rather like Rose's um, prayer refrain from last week, it's such a fantastic one. Um, mountain, 
don't dump yourself in the sea. I've been praying that ever since. It's a marvellous phrase. If, you, if you've got something too big that you can't deal with, just tell it to dump itself in the sea, okay? Because that's the authority we have. Great phrase. Well, here's another phrase for you. Because this is a more personal phrase that includes you in. Father, glorify your name. Why don't you start praying that as you pray? Using that phrase. Because it will make you think terms of your Father's glory rather than your own specific needs or desires or anxieties or whatever. You get yourself into a place of Father, glorify your name. Something, a problem that's facing you. Father, glorify your name. Somebody hurts you. Somebody disses you. Father, glorify your name. Somebody is in trouble who you know and love. Father, glorify your name in your presence. Someone is far from Jesus. Father, glorify your name in your presence. Some huge deal on the other side of the world. Father, glorify your name. Because in crucifixion, God the Father can still glorify his name through the glory he gives to his son in his obedience in crucifixion. And he glorifies doesn't matter how big the mountain is, we can still dump it in the sea. It doesn't matter how how painful the crucifixion is for us or for those we know or love or for the world. God can still glorify his name in that. So we need to be practicing our commitment to God in all these ways. I'm going to finish extraordinary prayer written by John Wesley for the Methodist Church, which he encouraged each of those Methodist chairs across the country to pray together once a year. The idea of this prayer is to enable them to go deeper year by year in their calling to discipleship. It's a really powerful and dangerous prayer. So I don't want you to pray it unless you intend. gracious offer of relationship to us, relationship to himself, is already a given, it's already there on the table. We're not kind of, we're not trying to earn that in some way. That is already offered to us. But if God is committed to us, this relationship, this committed relationship also presents a challenge. Because if God is committed to us, are we prepared to accept that the commitment of God and commit ourselves in return to Him? Even if we do choose to accept this uh, commitment, how can we manage to live out our commitment adequately, frail and human as we are? Well, Wesley wished this prayer to be prayed in the context of Holy because communion reminds us, Sunday by Sunday, of the vastness of our Heavenly Father's love for us, demonstrated in His Son's sacrifice for us. So, as I've been saying, in, in terms of Jesus' prayer, we receive the love of God for us. Secondly, 
by writing a, a long and full prayer, Wesley wanted to, to express the characteristic, the shape of the calling of the disciples. So by praying this prayer, by, by thinking and contemplating it, we start to understand what is the calling that we receive. And finally, Wesley wanted this prayer to be prayed routinely, regularly, year by year, not just in moments of crisis, but in an ongoing way. So that the Methodists were practicing this prayer and readying themselves for the time when the prayer would be needed above all. Well, I'm going to read this prayer now. It's going to be on the wall. I just invite you to read it and hear it and contemplate it and understand it and let it soak into you. I will be your God, says the Lord, and you shall be my God. Lord Jesus, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will rank me with dominion, put me to doing, put me to suffering, let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you, let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure
I will be your God, says the Lord, and you shall be my people. Lord Jesus, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and 